So very pleased to be able to introduce Professor Miles Houston of the Department of Experimental Psychology here at the University of Oxford and he's going to read us a paper entitled Social Psychological Aspects of Religion and Prejudice, Evidence from Experimental and Survey Research and then we're going to have a brief commentary from Professor Ingmar Persson who is at the UHERO Centre here in Oxford and also a professor at Gothenburg in Sweden. Okay, good afternoon everybody. Um, this is what they call the graveyard slot, which is very appropriate today um, because I'm going to talk to you in part about um, some, some fascinating things that have to deal with terror management theory in social psychology where, where we do experiments where we make people aware of their death. So it's very, very appropriate. Um, is this thing working to your satisfaction? I was rather hoping that Pat had broken it and I would have to dispense of it and I better be careful I don't call anyone a bigot while I'm at it. Um, Okay, so we are dealing with um, the paradox of religion and prejudice. A lot of, a lot of this uh, is known by everyone. I've not been able to attend all the sessions I'm teaching and examining at the moment, so I've been coming in and out. Uh, but we know we're dealing with this kind of paradox that religions uh, ought to and often do encourage tolerance, and yet there is evidence that religion or forms of religiosity uh, are often associated with prejudice. And what I'm going to try to do in this talk is to, is to unpack uh, an old idea of Gordon Allport's that religion can both make and unmake prejudice. It can be a maker and an unmaker of prejudice. And I'm going to suggest that, that it can be a maker through um, versions of religiosity such as fundamentalism and religion as an end. But it can be an unmaker... Uh, as I will hope to show through the second part of my talk when I talk about some experiments, uh, that actually people who, who do hold religious affiliations uh, are sometimes less susceptible to manipulations that have been found to make other people uh, increasingly intolerant. So I'm going to talk today um, about two pieces of work. One is a large cross-national survey on group-focused enmity. This is a project funded uh, by a group at the University of Bielefeld. They're essentially interested in that, that old idea that there are some sorts of people who hate all outgroups. They're not discerning, they're not discriminating in that sense between those groups. They hate them all. Thoroughly nice people, I'm sure. Um, and I'm also going to talk about these two quasi-experimental um, surveys. I must say, when went home last night and the night before, worked terribly hard in Google Images because people so far had these wonderful sets of pictures. Pat preceded mine with all these cuddly monkeys and what have you. So I mean, all I've come up with is God hates fags, but I did my best. Um, okay, the cross-national the cross national survey. Now, what I'm also deliberately doing today is I'm deliberately counterbalancing the strengths and the weaknesses of two different methodologies. We've heard about lots of other different methodologies at the conference. I'm not suggesting by any means that mine are the only two, um, but I think you, you will be able to see the strengths and the weaknesses in the both. The cross-national survey uh, is remarkable and it gave us access to, to uh, eight European countries, samples of about a thousand people in each of them. Uh, particularly interesting because a couple of people in the sessions that I've been in have raised the spectre of socially desirable responding. And there's a, there's a general sort of distrust about whether you can get people to own up um, to being homophobic, racist, anti-Semitic and so on. Uh, having been doing research on this topic for about 25 years, I can tell you there's not a problem uh, mostly in getting people to own up to it. Um, and 
In, in particular of interest here, we've got Hungary and Poland, where the levels of, uh, of various kinds of, uh, of prejudicial reactions are typically very strong. And I'm going to focus today on the data on anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and homophobia. Uh, I don't wish you to make any comparisons about the strength of those response tendencies because for all sorts of complicated reasons, uh, you know how they say a camel is a horse designed by a committee, there's a committee behind the design of this survey and various people had pet measures that they wanted to go into the survey. So the measures of these three uh, different types of group focused enmity are different. So the first thing I want to do is I want to ask the question, when you consider a whole host of typical control variables that any sociologist or political scientist might look at. And, and here's a list of them here, gender, age, economic situation, financial situation, and so on. And then you add in a couple of the key proximal social psychological predictors of religious prejudice and other forms of prejudice. Does religion actually add anything more? Because in a sense, if it doesn't, you might argue that, well, let's get rid of the social psychologists. We don't really need them here. They don't contribute anything very much. So let's say a little bit more about SDO, social dominance orientation, and RWA, uh, right-wing authoritarianism. And I apologize for those of you who do know lots about these topics. It's always very difficult talking to an audience like this. I will, I will try to say just enough to make it clear to the neophytes and not too much to make it boring for the old-timers. So SDO um, is essentially an inequality-based ideology. It's, a, it's a now taken the form of a 16-item scale that can be used relatively easily and hence is used very often. Uh, it, can, it can be given to, to people in all sorts of surveys. And there is a huge amount of evidence that people who prefer hierarchy in their societies, they prefer a structure with some groups at the top and some groups at the bottom, those people are essentially not very nice people. Um, they tend to be more sexist, racist, prejudiced towards immigrants, lesbians, gay men, feminists, housewives, and physically disabled people. They probably don't like professors either. Um, Right-wing authoritarianism um, is another old-fashioned idea, the idea of authoritarianism, of course, going all the way back to the 1950s and work of Adorno. Uh, it's more recent form, um, thanks to the work of Altemeyer, consists of three related ideas. I'm not going to pick those apart today, but it, just to mention by way of, uh, of introduction, the idea of submission uh, to authority figures, of aggression towards uh, those labelled wrongdoers, and of conventionalism, adherence to, to norms. And once again, we have people who are high on questionnaire scales uh, measuring this tendency tend to be people who dislike a wide variety of outgroups. So you might ask yourself quite reasonably, are these things measuring the same thing? Can we use one? Do we need them both? And to cut to the chase, I've just, I've just put in bold um, some of the, the key changes in the way we now tend to think about these kind of approaches. They used to be seen as personality dimensions. They're much more understood today as being um, assessments of, of ideology. And Together, um, they do a very good job of explaining the variance in all sorts of forms of outgroup intolerance. They, they explain about 50% of the variance. Remarkably, they're not that strongly correlated as a rule. They are in some sources. They often are not very highly correlated. So together, um, they, they do a pretty good job of sucking up um, a lot of your variance. And of course, the question then is, 
to what extent are these kind of uh, response tendencies associated with certain forms of religion and should we hold religion responsible or should we hold um, these kind of measures responsible. Um, if you've never seen these kind of scales in your life, just a, a few examples uh, of the kinds of scales. I should point out, and I will say this again later, one of the weaknesses of the, the survey research is you typically you trade off between the vastness of the numbers of your respondents and the, and the weakness, the smallness of your numbers of measures. So the SDO is a 16-item scale reduced to a 4-item scale here. The authoritarianism equally typically a much longer scale reduced to 3 items. But they have been used in these forms in lots of other surveys. Religiosity uh, is asked in the GFE um, survey just by a very simple one-item scale. How religious are you? Now, I, I think we can agree that that's absolutely not a fair way to measure religiosity, but we have to deal with what's in the scale, and we'll deal with that to some extent in the laboratory studies, and it also measures um, how often you attend religious services. Fundamentalism, again, there are multiple item scales of this. We've used some of those in the research that follows. That's, this survey included uh, a one item measure. My religion is the only true one, agree or disagree. The measures of the isms in this group, the anti-Semitism, the Islamophobia, uh, the homophobia, are as follows. I do emphasise they're not the same kinds of measures, so we have to be very careful about the conclusions that we can draw about the importance of, of uh, religion or anything else as a predictor of one versus other of these tendencies. Um, but again, they're fairly <coughs> conventional measures, broadly understood as attitudes towards these groups. Now, there are eight countries, as I mentioned, um, in, this, uh, in this survey, and trying to represent graphically the data from those eight countries is very difficult. It's even more difficult at quarter past three on a Wednesday afternoon. So I'm, I'm just going to pick out, if I can make this thing work, just a couple of very simple things. So the first thing is we add in the control variables. And as you can see, uh, if you can see, they don't add much of the variance. The numbers are all very small. Then in the second part uh, of the analysis, we include social dominance orientation and right-wing authoritarianism. And the numbers I I've put in red here are all the significant beta weights here. These variables are doing a pretty good job of explaining anti-Semitism across most of these countries. So the question, and this is a pretty demanding question I'm asking of religion here, particularly as we've measured it in such a weak form, I'm saying, having done all that, does religion add any more? And all you get is actually a negative correlation in the case of Germany. Uh, so in fact, religion is associated with less anti-Semitism in Germany. So, so far, not so very good for the idea that religion is a key component of prejudice. We did the same thing with Islamophobia, and the results are almost <coughs> exactly the same. Strong pattern of correlations across uh, the predictors SDO and RWA. Not, in no case um, is religion actually coming out. I do emphasize this is a very, very tough test of the impact of religion because the measure of it is, is just a single item and we'll deal with that in a minute. Having said all that, this is the, this is the figure that is really interesting um, and uh, if you read about debates in the Catholic Church, if you read about fundamentalist Christians in the south of the United States, if you read about people in the Anglican Church who are ready to leap to the Roman Catholic Church because of 
women bishops and gay priests, then you'll understand why, perhaps, religion, in this case, from having been completely insignificant, is suddenly a very key predictor of homophobic attitudes across all those countries. So we clearly do have evidence that religion is playing a role in at least this form uh, of outgroup prejudice. Quick summary uh, of the survey research. We have shown there is evidence that religion contributes to some extent to the prediction of prejudice over and above these other numerous control variables. Its impact varies uh, according to target group, remembering yet again different measures used for different target groups, the strongest evidence in the case of, of homophobia. The limitations of the survey. Of course, self-report measures, so we might be worried about socially desirable responding. Restricted measures of some of the scales and rather low corresponding reliabilities. So uh, we'll now try to complement the findings of the first study, look at some experimental, technically we should call them quasi-experimental studies because we haven't randomly assigned people to being religious or not, but we have randomly assigned them to other things. So what we're trying to do in the two um, experimental studies is to examine religion's relationship with positive outgroup attitudes under conditions that are normally associated with rather more negative outgroup attitudes. So we're going to try to provoke people uh, in a completely ethically defensible way and we're going to see what impact that has on the attitudes they express um, to outgroups. And in particular, we're going to test uh, the hypothesis that being affiliated with a religion will act as a buffer. It will act as something that will prevent you from succumbing uh, to the nastiness that would be the, the likely outcome of, of being provoked in this way. And the provocation here is to be reminded of your own mortality. Now, at this point, I really do think I need to ask people on a show of hands to, to tell me if they have come across terror management theory before. I have no idea how wide it sweep. Okay, that's, that's about half. So those of you who, who are expert, forgive me for a second. I'll have to just say a little bit about it. Terror management theory um, is a weird and wonderful theory. Um, Ara has himself published on it and uh, alluded to it, I think, indirectly in, in his talk yesterday, um, which really does a very interesting job of considering the relationship between religiosity and prejudice, which is something that tends to be rather ignored, actually, in most social psychological theories of prejudice. It, we, it's a complicated theory. It's generated in a very short period of time, an absolute mass of publications. Um, its key element, um, which I thought was completely cookie the first time that I heard about it, was that the awareness of one's inevitable mortality generates existential terror and anxiety. Um, I'm very sad, actually, because I never used to think about my death at all, but ever since I started teaching terror management theory, I can't get the damn thought out of my mind. Um, so... According to this theory, um, meaning-making is essential for somehow dealing, dealing with the potentially paralyzing effect that anxiety about one's impending death might have. And the argument goes in short that we develop culture, we develop religion as ways to deal um, with this potentially paralyzing um, mortality-relevant anxiety. 
When we are reminded of mortality, we need to find ways to affirm the validity of our worldview. And the, the scholars behind this theory have been incredibly creative in the kinds of studies that they have done. They've done studies on high streets where they, they tested some people uh, in view of a supermarket and some people uh, in view of a mortuary um, office, you know, and they find different results. They, they have made people aware, the typical kind of manipulation is to make people aware of their death by asking them to write an essay about, about what their thoughts are related to death. Um, sometimes it's done by, um, by priming, uh, and that might be conscious or unconscious priming. So there are all sorts of different ways, and to their credit, they have used a whole variety uh, of manipulations. I have to say, I really wasn't convinced by the theory when I first read it, and I, te I tend to deal with that by getting some of my undergraduate students to do some project work with me, and then we began to get interested, and we did some, some further studies uh, as a research group on this. So, since it's um, 20 past three, and, and you're all getting a bit tired, I thought I would attempt to summarize terror management theory in two cartoons. Um, the idea is basically that as animals we will die, as humans we know we will die. The latter is bad news, very bad news, and the question is, how do we deal with that bad news? Um, for those of you who can't read, we, we go from eat, survive, reproduce, through to what's it all about at the end. And the second cartoon that sums it all up uh, is, a, is the gravestone with somebody's name on it and the caption, coming soon. So this is essentially what you do in mortality salience manipulations. So the idea that links into our work on religion uh, is many religions involve a belief in, in literal immortality. In other sort of areas of life, we talk about symbolic uh, mortality. It's a shame that um, Harvey is not here today because I, I think that's the, where his work ties in with this. And the, the idea is that the need for um, worldview validation may actually be reduced for um, individuals who already hold religious beliefs uh, which help to defend them against this terror. And it's not just religions that do this. You know, there's a, there's a, a film, I think it's Full Metal Jacket, which is about the training of Marines, and they go through this horrendous training, and there's a bit at the end where their regimental sergeant major tells them that they're going to be sent off to Vietnam, and some of them will die, some of them will come back, but even for those of you who die, the Marines live on. So it's this kind of symbolic immortality which is, which is linked into all sorts of groups and is definitely related to the kinds of initiation rituals that Harvey was talking about. And typically what research on terror management theory that relates to, to intergroup relations has shown is that if you make people's mortality salience, then they tend to enhance people who share the same worldview as them, and they tend to derogate people who show a different worldview from them. So the idea that, that we're testing here is principally the, this idea of a buffering hypothesis. We are asking whether this affiliation with a religion might help you to deal with this buffer, this provocation of anxiety, so that because you, you are affiliated with the religion, um, perhaps you're less vulnerable to this impact. And there's quite a bit of work um, that is consistent with this argument. Um, you know, Ara, I heard you speak yesterday, but I still don't know how you pronounce your surname. Norenzayan. Norenzayan. That's actually how I used to pronounce it, and somebody corrected it. Okay, so Ara Norenzayan uh, <laughs> has done 
has done some nice work uh, showing that increased uh, awareness of mortality increases your belief in God. Uh, other people have shown that threatening the validity of the Bible increases death-related cognition in religious fundamentalists. So you can see that people are, are doing this both, both ways round. Evidence supporting the existence of an afterlife reduces the need to validate worldviews. I'm not sure how you get evidence of the existence of the afterlife, but maybe Richard knows that one. Um, being religious versus non-religious eliminates the impact of awareness of mortality on the need to defend one's worldview. And that's Ara's study, which is really the sort of direct um, theoretical uh, background to, to our study, all being done in a, in a slightly different way. So, reminders of mortality have been shown to increase prejudice. Will the, the, the affiliation with a, a religion reduce or even perhaps eliminate this effect? We're going to make this a tough test too, um, because we're going to ask whether you still uh, get a role of religion in these kind of cases. And we're going to look at type of religiosity measured by um, religious orientation. And again, we're going to look at some individual differences or ideologies associated with prejudice. We're going to look at social dominance orientation and we're going to look at fundamentalism. This time, both measured in their full ways, not in these truncated ways that we used for the survey. Um, I'm sure Dan Batson's uh, work on religious orientations is, is very well known. Um, we can come back to the small print of this, but, but essentially we used his scale, uh, based originally on the work of Allport and Ross, uh, on the distinction between religion as ends, which is often referred to as intrinsic religiosity, religion as means, often referred to as extrinsic religiosity, and religion as, as quest. Um, the constant questioning of one's stance. And by the way, actually, just to put in a, a plug for our leaders here, I thought, I thought Russell and Steve's review of the literature did a really, really thorough job of bringing together um, the literature on this and all sorts of, of related issues. Very useful indeed. Uh, fundamentalism, this sort of belief that, um, that one's own religion is the only true faith, also found to be associated with prejudice. Uh, we're going to be using Muslims as the target group uh, in, in the first of these studies. There is uh, at least one study out there that has already shown a link with Christians' attitudes towards Muslims via fundamentalism. So in study one, and this is where you go from the sublime to the tiny, so you go from 8,000 people in your sample to 213 people in a, in a psychology department experiment. Um, 121 of those have a religious affiliation, the rest do not. And we have one experimental manipulation, which is they are randomly assigned, half of them to mortality salience and half to the control condition. Um, I thought I'd been clever in dreaming up this manipulation, but we've just found out, when we came to, to write this up, we found out that we hadn't. Somebody else had used it as well. But this is about as weak a manipulation as I could imagine. We put together this questionnaire, which has got measures of religiosity, it's got measures of target group prejudice, and so on. And uh, through a, a colleague of mine who works on bereavement, I managed to track down a scale that measures attitudes to death and dying. And we simply took the attitudes to dying bit of this scale, just a few items. And for half the respondents, we put this at the very beginning of the questionnaire, and for the other half, we put it at the very end of the questionnaire. Very, very weak manipulation. Uh, predictions then, mortality salience will lead to more negative attitudes towards Muslims. The effect will be moderated by religious affiliation, only present in the non-affiliated 
participants. So it's this idea of the buffering hypothesis. Having a religious, a religious affiliation will buffer you um, to the effects of death-related anxiety. We don't think that that effect will depend on uh, measures of religious orientation, social dominance, or fundamentalist beliefs, but we're going to control for those too. That's the, the scale of death anxiety. Um, standard Batson-esque measures uh, of religion as, as end, means, and quest. And let me just mention here too, this is again, this is one of the advantages of trading off surveys and experiments. We're worried about socially desirable responding. Um, the best scale in the business for, uh, for measuring socially desirable responding is a 40-odd item scale, the balanced inventory of desirable, socially desirable responding, uh, and we actually use a shortened 24-item. There's just no way you could use a scale like that in a survey, considering we normally estimate it costs you about £500 for each, each survey question. Uh, we've got the full 16-item social dominance orientation measure, and we've got the full 12-item Altemeyer and Hunsberger religious fundamentalism scale. Um, we're measuring here uh, outgroup attitudes, very simple feeling thermometer scale, widely used uh, in the literature, and if I had had my choice, it would have been used in the survey so that we'd had the same measure uh, across all the different groups. So, results. We're looking first uh, at the feeling thermometer. So the higher these scores here, uh, the more positive your attitude towards the group, uh, in this case Muslims. And we are comparing here the non-affiliated with here the affiliated group. And we've got a control condition and we've got a mortality salience condition. And those results show that the Attitude is least positive, if you prefer the prejudice is greatest, among people who don't have a religious affiliation and are threatened with mortality salience. In contrast, when you're on the far right, when you are affiliated and your mortality is made salient, it doesn't seem to make any difference to you. So this is evidence for a buffering effect of religion. Uh, we test that, just to, to make that obvious, we test that with a contrast that predicts that that second column along will be significantly different uh, from the, the other three. And then we begin to, uh, to factor in the other manipulation, so that we test the, the buffer contrast, that's significant. Uh, I wanted to mention too, just before going on to the results, and I spent time with Dan Batson this week, but I meant to quiz him about this, but, but didn't. But uh, I'm not up to speed with just how many studies there are showing support for the three-factor structure. But uh, we could not find support for the three-factor structure um, in, in uh, our data. What we found is actually religion as means and religion as end, um, both loaded on the first factor. But we decided that, given the, the vast amount of literature supporting, uh, that we would go ahead and we would leave those in the analysis for now. So that's what I have, I have done. So here we are predicting um, the attitude towards Muslims um, among Christians and non-Christians at the moment. This is predicted by the buffer contrast for mortality salience, and now we're adding in our different measures of religion. Religion as means, end, quest, and fundamentalism. And as you can see, religion as an end uh, is positively associated with attitudes towards religion. Fundamentalism is negatively associated. So again, 
if you want that evidence, you've got some evidence for religion as a maker and an unmaker. There are forms of religion that are associated with tolerance. There are other measures of religion that are clearly not. And then when you add in socially desirable responding and um, social dominance orientation, um, at, at the end, I'm sorry, the, the minus has become separated from the point three. This always happens when you use a Mac and project on a, on a PC. <laughs> These little gremlins take over. Uh, social desirability, which people have been, been worried about, and this is a student sample, no effect of social desirability at all here, but a whacking effect of SDO. Um, and I, I think sort of largely the picture you're getting in, in, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this area um, is, is that it's these ideologies of social dominance orientation and right-wing authoritarianism that are, that are perhaps um, the real problem. Now we separate the analysis and we look separately at non-affiliated participants in the top half and we look at affiliated participants in the bottom half. And what you find there is mortality salience uh, contrast, significant for the non-affiliated participants, of course, that's what I've just shown you, strong effect of SDO, no effects of, uh, of religion, makes sense, these people are not affiliated. And then for the affiliated participants, again, you've got a mixture. So you've got religion as end, which is an unmaker of prejudice, and fundamentalism, which is a maker of prejudice, and again, the strong effect of SDO. So the second uh, experiment and the final bit of data for today, um, tried to develop this in a couple of ways. We collected our data uh, in Italy, where, where one of my collaborators is, um, and of course the vast majority of our participants there are Roman Catholic. Um, he has worked in the past um, with, uh, with Dan's scale and, and had had this problem of separate, separating out the factor structure. So what we decided to do is, is use DAMS again and also add in um, the original Allport and Ross scales. We just try to, to do the job as thoroughly as, as we could in assessing religion and hope that we would do a, uh, do a, get a better overall factor structure for religion. And what we tested here was an extension of the buffering hypothesis idea um, by looking at the variety of target groups. So we've looked in the first study at evidence for the buffering hypothesis with the target group of Muslims, and now um, we're going to include another group, um, which is a group against which prejudice is proscribed uh, according to Roman Catholicism. I think that we can just leave that one. Um, Evidence for the, for the factor structure was much better in the second study. Uh, we've got intrinsic religiosity and religion as end, loading on the first factor. Religion as quest, loading on the second factor. And extrins extrinsic religiosity, loading on the third factor. And then we proceeded, as before, with a study, this time with Italian volunteers. Um, and this time we went back just to give us generalization across uh, operationalizations. This time we used the conventional mortality salience manipulation in the literature. We had half the participants uh, write about their own death and we had half of them write about dental pain. 
Uh, incidentally, I'm not going to report those data, but we did also take an affect scale to, to look at whether the affect associated with those two manipulations was different. We would have partialed it out if it had been, but it wasn't. Um, predictions here is we are expecting to get that buffering effect again uh, for the Muslims to replicate that effect. But we're not expecting that effect for the prescribed, the non-prescribed prejudice, the fortune tellers. Um, religiously affiliated participants' prejudice, in this case, is endorsed by religious authority. Uh, they are telling them to, to doubt and challenge and question uh, this outgroup, which questions Catholic orthodoxy. Um, and they should uh, actually come in at a level comparable to the attitudes of non-affiliated subjects who are themselves exposed to mortality salience. So in this case, there are two determinants. There's mortality salience, which would determine prejudice, but there's also the reverse of the first study, being a member of a Roman Catholic uh, church, of the Roman Catholic church, would predict that you would have higher prejudice against this fortune teller group. Um, measures of religion uh, and thermometer measures against these two outgroups, Muslims and fortune tellers. We decided on these two groups uh, by doing a, a pilot study, by asking a subsample of Italian uh, volunteers the extent, about the extent to which they thought the Roman Catholic Church opposed prejudice to two different groups. That's how we selected them. Um, I didn't really know anything about these groups, um, but it, well, about the group of fortune tellers, but, but uh, Alberto Vocci, my Italian collaborator told me that the answer was always to be found in the Vatican um, and you can look up the catechism of the, the Catholic Church which tells you in uh, no uncertain terms that the, that the Muslims are basically good guys who profess to hold the faith of Abraham. Um, the um, fortune tellers however uh, are a very uh, different lot. Um, they are to be doubted uh, and indeed all forms of divination are to be rejected, recourse to Satan or demons, conjuring up the dead or other practices falsely supposed to unveil the future. So, um, what do we find when we compare our four conditions with Muslims and with our new group, fortune tellers? Looking at the data for Muslims, they behave exactly as they did in the previous experiment, further evidence for the buffering hypothesis. Uh, the feeling thermometer is only significantly depressed for the non-affiliated participants in whom mortality was made salient. The data look rather different uh, for the fortune tellers. Um, the, for the, the, the contrast for the buffering is actually significant there, um, but it's quite clear, and we tested the alternative contrast, the alternative contrast is much stronger, um, which is that because either you're a Catholic or you're in the mortality salient condition, these are, these are factors that are going to make you dislike this group. And it's only the control group who are non-affiliated who don't have any reason um, to dislike this group. So again, um, we try to extend the analysis now by, uh, by building in not just the buffer contrast, but the various types of, of measure of religion, this time intrinsic, extrinsic, and quest, and again, um, SDO, and at the moment, we'll begin by looking at the two target groups separately, and we'll consider all our participants together. And if you look at Muslims, the picture is pretty much as before, a marginally significant, in fact, buffer contrast, uh, intrinsic religion, 
positively related to attitudes, extrinsic negatively related, and STO negatively related. For fortune tellers, um, you get a significant buffer contrast. Intrinsic orientation now is negatively related to fortune tellers because this is a group that the church says it's okay to be prejudiced against. Uh, marginally significant effect for extrinsic and uh, a marginal effect for SDO, presumably because fortune tellers don't figure very seriously in the hierarchy of groups in, in society. And then, uh, and this really is the most complicated thing, so then we can all go to sleep. No, we can't. We've got to listen to discussions and stuff. We can't go to sleep. But you can go to sleep in a minute, um, for a minute. Uh, so now we've got the full picture. We've got the non-affiliated and the affiliated participants, their attitudes towards Muslims and their attitudes uh, towards fortune tellers. Taking the non-affiliated uh, and the affiliated towards Muslims, basically the picture is that... Um, there is buffering for the affiliated and there is a role for religious factors in making and unmaking prejudice. SDO is important for the affiliated and the unaffiliated. In the case of attitudes towards uh, fortune tellers, um, the religion again is only significant in the case of the fortune uh, in the case of the affiliated participants, mortality salience is much stronger uh, in the case of the non-affiliated participants. So you get the picture, which is that religion can, in lots of different and complex ways, be a maker and an unmaker of prejudice. And I think it's just too, too simple to look for a yes-no answer with, with all these different types of prejudice, with all these different types of religion, uh, and so on. So, essentially, um, we need to move on from, from that picture. And I guess the overall summary uh, of what our uh, research has, has told us uh, is, yes, religion can make and it can unmake prejudice, um, Staggering results to me personally from the survey. I really hadn't expected um, that just this tiny measure of religion could make uh, such a big contribution over and above all the other measures, especially SDO and RWA. Maybe what we should really be focusing on is why some Christians hate gay men quite so much. Maybe that's, that's really the, what comes out more than anything else. Um, but perhaps we shouldn't go too hard. Uh, on, the, on the religious because there's lots of evidence that forms of religion are associated with tolerance, not, not intolerance. Um, final cartoon um, to end up with, um, and that's my research team uh, who all contributed massively to this piece of research. Thank you. Right. Uh, I'm sure at this point, at this time of the day, I, you're all longing for, to hear uh, Richard Dawkins wrapping up the conference. Still, I feel I have to say something uh, because in order to have earned the free meals, I, I get <laughs> because I'm a commentator. Uh, I do fulfill that obligation with some reluctance because I'm a philosopher and not a social psychologist. Uh, I, I want to thank Myers for sort of making an heroic, heroic attempt to overcome his nature and principles, n n not to provide any, not to have advanced material. 
I got some advanced material uh, which I glanced through at lunchtime. So uh, I can't, I won't be able to dig into the paper. I'll just sort of give some general comments uh, of a sort of philosophical uh, 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 nature. I hope not too philosophical. Uh, I might have been talking about it sort of afternoon. We were all sort of tired after a few days of conference. Uh, conference. So uh, in order to perk myself up, I mean, I, I need to sort of put forward uh, some uh, a rather extreme claim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <coughs> Namely, that I think Miles would do himself a favour, his teammates a favour, if he were to scrap uh, the concept of prejudice. I think he could say everything he wants to say without using the concept of a prejudice. For instance, he, he switches between talking uh, about prejudice and outdoor uh, enmity or um, negative out-group out attitudes and things like that. And I think it could sort of rephrase uh, everything he says in those terms. And I think that is preferable because the concept of a prejudice is so uh, difficult. Or rather, I should say, it isn't the concept itself. It's rather easy to sort of define roughly what a prejudice is. It's sort of a belief you hold on insufficient, inadequate, uh, uh, epistemic grounds. It's motivated mainly by sort of your uh, emotions, desires, and so on. Some would say that prejudice would have to be false. I'm not sure about that, but if you think so, we can instead talk about holding a view in the manner of a prejudice. That is sort of implied falsity of a doctrine. Now, Miles talks about specific, certain specific prejudices like, like for instance, racist and, and sort of sexual uh, prejudices of certain kinds. Now, I, I think that is, those are undoubtedly prejudices. But the, pro the problem is that, uh, two problems, I think, it's in the case of those preferences, oh, sorry, prejudices, it's unclear or a matter of debate who's actually a, a, a subject, who actually has, who actually had those preferences, uh, sorry, prejudices. Uh, take, for instance, uh, uh, the being uh, uh, endorsing an anti-Semitism. Now, uh, uh, some years ago, there was a, uh, a Swedish rabbi who says that it's up to Jews to determine who's an anti-Semite uh, anti and who isn't an anti-Semite. Now, uh, and many people, uh, in, in the, as regards the conflict in the Middle East, uh, many, sometimes when people criticize uh, the politics of Israel, uh, uh, the Israels will reply, this is just an, uh, a, a, an expression of anti-Semitism. So the point is that it's a matter of debate who actually has this view. And think of the, the, the prejudice of sexism. In Sweden, my home country, is considered to be one of the most egalitarian countries in the world, especially as regards the relation between the sexes. Uh, still, there is a feminist party in Sweden and the leader of that party claimed that Swedish men are Taliban. Uh, 
And another uh, uh, member of that party said, all men are walking dildos. Uh, I'm, I'm rather a talking dildo and a, stand, and a standing dildo, but that goes without saying. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, that sort of goes, she would sort of, her, her point was, or their point was, that Swedish men are sexist. Swedish men has a, a prejudice against women. <coughs> Whereas, of course, many men would say that she's the one who's prejudiced. And that sort of goes to show that it, it is a matter of debate who is prejudiced and who isn't. Now, the other one, and, and, and that sort of is, is a point concerned with those particular uh, prejudices Miles discusses. And which I think it should, in, in, in those cases, I think it should replace uh, some prejudice by uh, outgroup, negative outgroup attitudes. So that would be more. The other problem is that I think virtually, more or less every important doctrine we hold is a prejudice. <laughs> Might be. I mean, take, take the view that democracy is the best form of government. I mean, if, I mean, do you really have adequate epistemic uh, evidence, justification for that claim? Do most people have that? Or for the view that all humans are equals? I don't think so. I haven't seen it in the philosophical literature. So, uh, take a view like speciesism, the view that human beings have a higher moral status in virtue of being um, uh, members of the species Homo sapiens. Many philosophers, including myself, would say that that view is a prejudice. But of course, uh, that's a minority view. Still, one might say, this is uh, perhaps in the future, uh, we will, future uh, human beings will look on the, that view, uh, that sort of view, and sort of think it's uh, as much of a mystery how people could have had that species view as we look back on, say, the 30s and wonder how even very intelligent people could be uh, anti-Semites. For instance, Wittgenstein in the 30s, I mean, he expressed very, very strong anti-Semitic uh, uh, attitudes. He says Jews were a cancerous uh, outgrowth on, 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 on uh, the body of society. Of course, he was a sexist as well. Uh, I mean, he, there was only one woman, namely Anscombe, who was who he would talk seriously philosophy with. When, when the women, the female students, all apart from Anscombe, left the room and said, so now we can get down to serious business, talk philosophy. He didn't want to talk philosophy with female students. Anyway. So uh, this goes to show how, how the perspective can change and what counts as a prejudice and not. And of course the reason for that is that uh, what is, I said it's part of the definition of the concept of a prejudice, is that you hold a view because of insufficient epistemic justification. And it's very much a matter of debate, in many views, what is sufficient justification for a view or not. 
but because, I mean, so many of you, and I think this is my personal view, but it's, it's, uh, it's a bit idiosyncratic, that all of our fundamental beliefs are prejudices. So, I mean, Humes would say that we're, there's no justification for induction, because if we were to justify it, uh, we would either sort of go in a circle or uh, uh, <coughs> find that we don't have any justification. And uh, <coughs> the same as regards to memory, because all our views on our, all our knowledge of, of the past is based on memory. Uh, and I think uh, it could be the case that sort of uh, we're just sort of wired up to have certain fundamental beliefs because they, they help us to survive and so on. So ultimately a lot of our views would be without justification. And in that case many views would be prejudices. But, but the point is just that it is a very sort of slippery concept and it's sort of unclear what is, which views are prejudices and, and what people are prejudiced, prejudiced, prejudiced. So that, that's my... Uh, thank you, Ingmar. Do you want to respond briefly to these comments, well? Uh, only very briefly. Ing Ingmar has been... Um, so gentlemanly um, in, in dealing, he, he emailed me some time ago and asked to see my uh, my paper beforehand. I said I'd love to see my paper beforehand too, <laughs> uh, because I'm, I'm always a, always a, a, a last minute person. Um, sorry about that, um, but um, I actually think he made some very very good points. Um, the short answer is that that means. I always, always enjoy talking to philosophers because philosophers do all the conceptual work that psychologists don't have the patience for. We love numbers too much. We get, we get on with, with things. That's, that's just the, the way we are. Um, you're never going to change, um, even, even if you're right, and I suspect you might be, you're never going to stop people talking about prejudices yeah, in this yeah, area. Yeah. Go home and do a Google search. And, yeah. and You're right, I use the term prejudice and negative attitude interchangeably because in psychology that is the definition of a prejudice. But, but I, I think you made very interesting points uh, about whether in fact many, if not all, of our fundamental beliefs might be prejudice. I find other terms more objectionable. I, I, I have trouble talking about tolerance, for example. Political scientists like to talk about tolerance, but um, if I think of, of the etymology of tolerance, that makes me think that there is something that must have some noxious characteristic and therefore I have to tolerate it. And that's not how I feel about ethnic groups and homosexuals and, and all these other groups. I don't feel that there is anything that I have to tolerate. So I, I suspect we, we, can't, um, we can't close that, that gap, but I, but I think it's an interesting observation. Um, and thank you for that.